It's time to write a new story. This is Success Stories with Madison Piper. It's the place where women discuss how to make an impact. Here's your host, Madison Piper. Have you ever wondered what your Enneagram is, or do you even know what the Enneagram is? Because if you don't, or if you haven't, this episode is going to blow your mind, I promise. And for people who are new to the concept of the Enneagram, you can kind of think of it like a personality test where you're labeled as one of nine personality types. Now I say it's a personality test, but honestly, it's a lot deeper than that. And hopefully by the end of today's episode, you'll be able to learn which category or Enneagram type you fall into because today's guest is none other than the author of the Honest Enneagram and the host of the Enneagram and Coffee podcast, Sarah Jane Case. Now to say that Sarah Jane is an expert on people reading and personalities is an understatement because after years of research and practice, she might be one of the most skilled communicators that I have ever spoken to. And through all of her research and studies and conversations, Sarah Jane uses her broad platform to help people discover themselves and identify their purpose that might be boiling beneath the surface. This way, they can know that their life can be lived and lived well. She uses the Enneagram to help people identify their strengths and weaknesses and uses her expertise to help you put the puzzle pieces of your inner being and goals together so that you can live fully, serve others, and help become your best self. Sarah Jane, thank you for joining us today on Success Stories. I am so excited for this conversation. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. And as we disclosed before we started recording this podcast, I'm like absolutely obsessed with you. I have been following Enneagram forever and like I love your account. So I want you to start off, if it's okay, by telling everybody a little bit about what the Enneagram is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Enneagram is like a personality tool, essentially. It breaks us down into nine distinct personality types, each with a basic fear, basic motivation. And the thing that makes it different from something like Myers-Briggs or even astrology is we get away from what we do and we get underneath into why we do it. And so it's all so motivation-based and it's very intimate. It's like very specific, very detailed in a way that's honestly kind of creepy, but is beautiful. And it, and I like to think of it as it shows you nine distinct ways in which you thought you had to be in the world. Did you think you had to be perfect? Did you think you had to be easy to get along with? Like, how did you earn your place? Okay. And there's, you get one of nine numbers, right? So everybody mm-hmm. can be one through nine and they're all different things, but I think everybody can identify really specifically with one. Now, something I really love about the Enneagram is it, it's not only self-discovery, but it helps you feel seen. And that's something that I've seen a lot on your Enneagram and coffee pages and through your podcast and everything is you really have built a community of people who feel seen through your content. How did you fall in love and find your passion for Enneagram? And and how does that keep you going to do the podcast, to write your books, for your Instagram and everything else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say I have always been passionate about people and about why people do the things they do and how they show up in the world. And Honestly, like I can look back at my life and as a teenager, when I go back and read my journals, it's all about like self-discovery and understanding people and why people do the things that they do. And then 
I went into college and I had an advice column in the college newspaper and like I was a barista and I I was obsessed with all of my customers and just knowing them and kind of like studying them. Um, So I've kind of always been that way. And I started as a photographer in my career and was trying to get to know my clients in that way. And then I went into marketing and all of that to say like this evolution of career path and interest was always pointing back to the people. No matter what I was doing, I was just trying to get to people and understand people. And the Enneagram came to me when I was coaching. And I thought as a coach, like this is as close as I'm going to get to just working with people and like humanity. And then I found the Enneagram and I was like, oh, this is like, (laughs) we boiled it down even more into like the essence of why people do the things they do. So by the time I found it, I was ready. Like I was so excited just to have language, to ask the right questions, to speak to something that has always been fascinating to me. So um, with that, I think the Enneagram also offers so much depth into why we're doing the things that we do that it's infinitely interesting. You know, like there's just no... I'm my Enneagram type is a seven. So we're the enthusiast. We're curious. We lose interest fast. And with the Enneagram, it's like there's infinite depth. There's infinite possibility. And so um, it has definitely maintained my interest over time. That's awesome. And I mean, I mean, you're right. It's more than just a personality test, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't just tell you, oh, you're extroverted or, or you, mm-hmm. this are, these are your best skills. You know, they're healthy and unhealthy Enneagrams. And it really gets into the depths of who you are and your strengths and your weaknesses, and even as much as communication skills. But what does it mean to be like an unhealthy Enneagram number. What does that mean? Can you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah. So with the Enneagram, what I think is really interesting is that it's really showing us, okay, here are your strengths. Here are the things that you're naturally gifted at. So let's say maybe you're a peacemaker. So you're naturally inclined to be, to keep the peace, to moderate, to um, manage different perspectives and to be open and accepting. That's amazing, right? Like that's a gift. But when it's overused, when it's used to the extreme or when it's used in the wrong times, it can be what shows up as your unhealth. It can be exactly the thing that's keeping you from connection in your life. So that peacemaker thing where you're easy to get along with, you go with the flow, you're really relaxed, when overdone can look like hiding who you are, not knowing your preferences, not really understanding what you want and what you need because you've merged with the preferences of other people. So um, yeah, and, and that peace, that peacemaker energy can become kind of numbness or tuning out or shutting out the world or not feeling anything. And so it's all about finding that where is this healthy and appropriate, the strength, and it can be a strength. And then where am I overusing it? Where has it gone too far? So do you think that people ever like misdiagnose their Enneagram numbers? How do you think is the best way to go about discovering where you fall on the spectrum? People mistype all the time. And I I think this happens because we take quizzes online and we just take the first answer that we get. And what I say is definitely take the quiz, right? Take a quiz, 
look at the first three answers that you get and then go read those three and see if any of those make you feel uncomfortable. Um, maybe a little bit exposed. When I read mine, I was like, it feels like I'm reading my journal out loud. Like someone has written my journal here. And so if you don't get that sensation, if you read it and you're like, I can kind of see myself here, then you probably keep reading, keep looking at whatever until you get to that point, read all nine if you need to. And then you'll see when you get there. Okay. So, and I told you earlier, I'm a little bit of an Enneagram nerd. I love the Enneagram and I'm a three through and through, but I've had conversations with people before where they like tell me their Enneagram number and they say, well, I see this content all the time and it doesn't really describe me. So I don't really think I fall anywhere on the spectrum. And part of me is like, does it not describe you? Or are you just in denial of the fact that it's super, super true, right? Do you ever run into that issue? I mean, because like you said, it's really exposing. Do you have people come to you with questions about that type of thing? Oh, for sure. And I think there's two reasons that this happens. I think sometimes we have to create Enneagram content from kind of a lower level health, right? Because as we get healthier and we're doing our growth work, and even if we haven't found the Enneagram yet, we start to look like more than one number. We Because where the goal is, the idea of the Enneagram is that like we're living just like one little one ninth of what it means to be a human. Mm-hmm. We've kind of pigeonholed ourselves into this like little corner pocket, but we're actually we have all nine available to us. So we get to choose how we show up in any given situation. We don't have to show up as our type. And so the Enneagram is this invitation into, well, what if you didn't show up only in this way? What if you could be loved and accepted or successful without doing all, you know, without doing kind of your shtick or what you think you have to do? So that being said, as we get healthier, we kind of start to look less like our number. And so these stereotypes or these kind of average level behaviors can start to feel a little bit unfamiliar or old. But the other piece of this is that online content sometimes can be very stereotypical. And so we can see that like these, this content can look like, like for a type seven, they can say, oh, you love to party. You love a good time. You just love to like fun, fun, fun. But the the type structure is much more complex than that, really. It's it's about, you know, options, feeling limitless, having freedom available to you, not being trapped in emotional pain. And so not all type sevens are going to want like glitter and sparkles and parties, but they're all type sevens are going to want limitless options freedom to explore their interests and um, not being trapped in emotional pain. Okay. And then you mentioned being pigeonholed, right? And so Mm -hmm. there's something called a wing. So whatever number that you have, you can also have a wing, which means you lie on either side of that number with a similar personality, right? So if I'm a Enneagram three, I can have a wing two, which is the helper and then a wing four, which is the individualist, right? So can you describe what wings are a little bit and maybe how those can help you identify more about your personality, your strengths, your weaknesses? Yeah. So if we think about the Enneagram types as colors, right? So let's say type three is blue and type two is yellow. If you are a three wing two, you're going to be green. So it's kind of like you're merging these two characteristics together. Um, It's really about your motivation. So your dominant type is going to be the one that you're like your basic fear, the basic motivation, the worldview resonates. 
But then the wing is going to be more behavioral, like things that you do that maybe look like this type. So a three wing two is going to be more hospitable, a little bit more of like an entertainer or a host because that two energy is like moves toward people, wants to connect. Then we have the type four, that four wing, the type four moves away from people. They kind of have their self-referencing. They're focused on what do I want? What do I need? So that three energy is going to merge with the four energy and they're going to be a little bit more independent and a little bit less focused on how um, they're making other people feel and more focused on what they're producing. However, we um, all have access to both wings. So the wings are only the two numbers on either side of your number on the chart. So like you said, a three can only be a wing two or a wing four, but we have access to both. And typically we think that like these two numbers that you have on either side are numbers that are incredibly beneficial to your type structure. So if we think about that peacekeeper character, the type nine, um, they are the most likely to silence their voice, to soften their opinions, but they're on either side of them. Their wings are the most opinionated most self like confident in terms of like right and wrong types are on either side. So their wings are the type eight, which is the challenger and type one, which is the reformer, this like good and bad, right and wrong. And the nines like naturally very accepting of all ideas and all opinions. And yes, everything is good. We're all going to get along. Um, so they can use those wings as a skill set to to find their voice, to speak up, to um, do what is you know what they believe to be right. It's the same way for all of us. We can really use those as assets. However, we all tend to lean into one or another. Some people find that they have balanced wings where they're using both, and some might say that they don't use any of their wings. Okay. Okay. So, but from what I understand, the wings provide a little bit of balance within mm-hmm. your number, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I want to get into the typing of Enneagrams and maybe talk a little bit about each specific number. So the people listening to this podcast can maybe figure out where they lie on the spectrum. Um, but first we're going to have a quick break and then we'll get right into that. Okay. So we are back, Sarah, and I want to talk a little bit about each Enneagram number. Hopefully the people listening to this podcast can kind of figure out where they lie. So you don't have to go full in depth because I know that we could talk for hours about each one, but can you tell me a little bit about one through nine and maybe the best ways to figure out where you are on the spectrum? Yeah. So for type, well, we'll start with type one. So type one is the reformer or the perfectionist. And the worldview here is that the world is an imperfect place and it's my job to fix it. We have type two, which is the helper. And the worldview here is that it's, um, that love is earned through what I do. Um, we have type three, the achiever. Um, and the, the idea here for the achiever is that like worth is earned through what I do and they're afraid of being worthless. And we have type four, which is the individualist. They're focused on finding and expressing their significance and finding their unique identity. And we have type five, the investigator. They're afraid, their fears of being incompetent or incapable, and they're focused on um, finding, being informed and managing their energy levels so that they can be competent and capable. We have type six, the loyal skeptic, and their focus of attention is on finding that safety, that security. They want to be supported by others. They seek support. And we have type seven, the enthusiast, their focus is on um, keeping their options open. They fear being trapped in emotional pain. 
and we have type eight, the challenger, and their world, their worldview is that the world is a tough place. It's a dog eat dog world and only the strong survive. And like, I have to be strong to meet the needs of the world. And we have type and like I defend the innocent. That's the other piece there. And then we have type nine, the peacemaker, and their primary focus of attention is maintaining their peace of mind and they fear loss of connection with others. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I think that the way that you describe each of those, I'm sure everybody listening can pinpoint the one that they think that they fall most in line with, but have you ever assigned maybe celebrities or people from television shows, public figures to Enneagram? So maybe someone can find a person that they relate to that falls in line with what they do. Yeah. I mean, I love to do that with fictional characters, especially because I think, um, a really well-written fictional character tends to have a pretty clear Enneagram type. Um, I use Harry Potter the most when I do like corporate trainings. I'll reference Harry Potter because there's so many good characters in that, th- that kind of book series. Okay. What would Harry be? I think he's an eight. You think he's an eight? Yeah. Cause he's like, okay. um, powerful and kind of rebellious, but, doesn't really trust people and gets puts himself on the line like physically for everybody mm-hmm. else all the time. Okay. And I was I was looking into like an Enneagram uh typing Instagram post and it was saying that Monica Geller would be a one. Do you think that's like an accurate like from friends that Monica would be the one? Yeah. Do you think that's an accurate representation of a one? I would put her either at one or three. One yeah. or three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm a three through and through. Like mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a three through and through, but then you might be talking to me and you're like, mm, you think you're a three, but you could be oh, so no, you know you different. better than I do. <laughs> yeah. But um so we were talking about healthy and unhealthy traits mm-hmm. of each Enneagram, right? And I've looked into myself like some of the unhealthy stuff, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally do that. It's a, a huge stressor in my life. Do you think that identifying those stressors and identifying those unhealthy traits, the recognition can help us move on from them? Or what do you think is the best take of action in order to combat those things in ourselves? Yeah. I really think it's about, um, once we have the awareness, we're able to take intentional pause. And I will, I will say, if anyone asks me, you know, how do I use the Enneagram? I like to say it's a map right? It's, it's where we need to go. We kind of have the information we need to know what we need to go, but we need tools to support that map, like to get us there. So, um, my favorite tool is simply meditation. So we can create a little bit of space between our thoughts, our feelings, and our reactions. And when we're able to create that space, then when it's like, we're moving out of reaction mode into response mode, right? So as seven, my reaction when something gets hard, when emotions are intense, is to flee the scene, right? Exit, <laughs> exit the situation. But now that I know, okay, I tend to flee the scene. I have done my meditation today. I have the space. I can like pause and say, what's a different way I can respond here? So for example, I recently closed a program of mine or changed it significantly. Um old Sarah Jane, you know, 10 years ago would have just been like, okay, we're done. I'm out. Like time is done. (laughs) And now I sat on the phone with people and just listened to them, people who had issue with that decision and would just like listen to them and empathized with them and sat with their frustration, which 10 years ago would have been inconceivable to me. It would have felt 
impossible to do. And now because it's meditation and the awareness, I'm able to say, this is hard for me and I can do it. Okay. So meditation, implementing practices into your life to, to combat those and everything as an Enneagram seven and as an Enneagram expert, how do you help other people identify the ways that they can become a healthier version of themselves? Because I see you put really unique content out there to each specific person. So what inspires you or where do you find, you know, this information to help them, even though you might not fall in line with kind of where they lie? I am lucky enough that I talk to people almost all day long. I'm constantly listening, whether that's in you know, meetings with people, whether that's doing trainings or reading the comment section of what I create. And I've read almost every Enneagram book you could imagine. So kind of pairing that with also going to conferences or leading panels and just listening, listening to humans tell me what they know about themselves. And, um, you know, I've gotten it wrong enough times and been corrected and I've just been listened. You know, I think there there's a chance that I, if someone were to say, Hey, I don't see myself like that. I kind of see it more like this, that I could respond and say, well, no, (laughs) that's not what it is. But instead I kind of take the stance of, you know, yourself, and I'm going to trust that, you know, yourself. And so I'm going to learn from you. And I think because I listen, um, it has allowed me to have more complex content than if I were just kind of going off of textbooks. Got it. So it's it's been a long time in practice. You getting to know people, mm-hmm. talk to people, experience life with people. That's what's mm-hmm. been able to help you see the umbrella of the different personalities and everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your book, The Honest Enneagram. Tell me why honest. There's a lot of books about the Enneagram, but yours the title alone tells me that it's a little bit different. So tell me how honesty plays into it. And then a little bit about what drove you to write the book in addition to everything else that you do. Yeah. So I, my whole life, so I, before the Enneagram, people have always asked me like, how are you so confident? Why are you, you know, what's, how are you this way? How are you so confident? And I've really tried to suss that out. Like, why do I think that like I'm worthy of good things and like I'm okay and I generally like myself. And I was like, I think it's because I'm okay with the fact that I'm also the worst. Like at times I'm just kind of the worst and that's okay with me. And I expect other people to be the worst (laughs) and like to just sometimes not be your perfect self. So when I thought about the Enneagram book I wanted to write, I thought about that sensation that we feel when we're trying to pretend like all is well, like that, like look in the mirror and like affirmation ourselves to confidence. Like I am powerful. I am strong. And like not really believing it underneath because we're really only pouring love into the part of ourselves that we think is worthy of love. Right. So if I'm only worth is a seven, if I think I have to be happy all the time in order to be okay, well, then I'm only accepting myself when I'm happy, right? And so what I wanted to create was a a narrative around, well, how do we like ourselves even when we're the worst? So how do we have true confidence? And in my opinion, it's about getting honest with ourselves. Like, 
where do I struggle? Where am I strong? And like just looking at it like data instead of taking it like there's nothing wrong with not being good all the time or not being perfect all the time. There are things that don't serve my relationships. There are things that don't serve your relationships. None of us are better or worse than the other. We just need to kind of look at it as information and do what we can with it. So support our strengths and really let them shine and then find ways to ease and soften our way to growth. You know, that's really interesting that you say you need to look at all of this like data. I haven't heard it put like that before, but I mean, it's really true because I've caught myself a lot of the time saying I'm the worst, you know, sorry guys, I'm the worst. And it's almost an excuse, you know, for my behavior. And you're right. When you feel like you're the worst in an area, you don't pour love into that area of your life. And so being the worst in that area, you get worse, right? It never changes. You never grow. Yeah. We get caught up in the emotionality of it. And we tell ourselves like, oh, I, I'm always going to be this way. I, I am struggling here. I don't deserve good things. But in reality, if we can look at it and just say, where do I need support? How, how can I choose a different path? Like this isn't working for me. How can I pick something that would work better? Okay. And then how do you think that affirmations play into that? Because you brought up affirmations earlier. Do you think that affirmations are a positive thing or do you think that recognition is more important or do you think they go hand in hand? I think I think of affirmations as more of like a self-soothing technique than a confidence builder. So um, one of my affirmations is I breathe in love and I breathe out comfort. So I'll say like, I love you. And it's okay that you speak really fast, you know, like whatever your thing is and like comforting myself. But then on the other side of that, I think what we often try to use it as a Band-Aid for our lack of self-esteem. So we think if I can just say these mantras over and over again, I will see myself as I'm saying I see myself. And I think that's just like it feels fake. It feels like we're, we're playing pretend because we need to get into that wound. We need to clean it out and we need to like put some neosporin on it um, Mm -hmm. in the form of just like self-acceptance for the parts that are messed up. And then we can start to, from that place of love, from that place of safety, actually start to work on the things that aren't working. Healing. Healing. I know we talk about healing so much here at success because it's so important because we really can't move forward until we heal our past, right? You're just leaving those wounds open um, to grow. So how does the Enneagram play into healing? How can you use your Enneagram type to help yourself heal? Yeah. So my favorite tool for this is the soul child theory. Each of the Enneagram types have a number that they move to in stress and rest, when you feel really safe, you kind of show up as one a different number in, per, in behavior at times. So the soul child theory says that that number that you go to and rest is really who you were as a kid and that your Enneagram type kind of formed as a sort of armor to protect that tiny version of yourself. And so um, when I think about healing, I kind of go back to that soul child in us, right, that rest point, and I give them full permission to to thrive. And I think that's where we start, For in my opinion, we start in that space of like, hey, little kid in me that didn't think that you were allowed to, you know, it was safe to go off on your own and like do research and explore 
it's okay for you to do that. You don't have to be everybody's sunshine. You don't have to perform this role that you thought you had to perform. You know, for type threes, this whole child there is six, um, who is kind of the more fearful number on the Enneagram. They, a lot of threes say that they were really anxious kiddos and like feared things and they learned to power up and they learned to perform as a way to earn love and learn acceptance. And so this, it gives you the freedom to just acknowledge your fear, to acknowledge your need for community, to not compete, but to kind of elaborate instead. So this is a concept about the Enneagram that's actually new to me. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that is the soul child, because, you know, Mm -hmm. you just talked about six being the soul child for three. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, What are the soul children for the other numbers and what do they mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. for So for type one, that would be seven. Type ones are kind of the more rigid, um, disciplined type. And that type seven is more playful, open, expansive. So it can help that one to be more playful and silly and light. I'll try and go faster for the other ones, but for type two, that's we've got time. We've got time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For type type two, that soul child is four, which is like um, that that helper too, who's so focused on other people, can actually then take the time to be self referencing, self focused, um, take time for themselves to kind of romanticize their lives, treat themselves the way they've always wanted to be treated. We kind of touched on three and then for four, it's that move up to type one. So the belief here for four is kind of like at some point in their life, they learned that they couldn't be good. The type one's focus is on being good, doing the right thing. Somewhere along the way, the four learned that like, I will never be good. And I, so I, in order I can be special instead. So they're kind of looking for that specialness. But that release there is to pour into the to the little kid and say, like, you are so good. You are always good. You were born good. You will be good. You're allowed to just be who you are. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, then for type five, um, that move is up to eight, which is kind of like this bold, strong character. But the type five is the most private kind of closed off of the types, the most um, in uh, we, like traditionally introverted, you would say. So um, I've heard a type five say to me before, like the mantra in her household was kids. I keep saying mantra. I don't intend to say that affirmation is a more appropriate word, but um, the kind of the the message in childhood that they received is like kids are meant to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of how they, they, so that like loud, like vivacious aid gets shielded in privacy and they find they have to like kind of retreat to create their own little world in their mind. And we have the type six and the soul child there is to nine, the peacemaker. The six is the most kind of overtly anxious or fearful of the types. But then as a little kid, it was like they were the peacemaker. They were like calm and cozy. And somewhere along the way, they learned that it wasn't okay for them to be that. They needed to be on guard. They needed to be skeptical. They needed to figure out who they could and couldn't trust. Then we have type seven, the enthusiast in childhood. They were the type five, like that um, introspective, quiet, intellectual type. Um, And that somewhere along the way, they learned that they needed to be the sunshine. They needed to bring the happiness, the joy to the room. And so that they can't just be off on their own doing their own thing. They have to kind of constantly be looking up to the future and thinking of the better things that could be done. And then type eight, um, as little eights, our eights are the strongest, right? They're the most like confrontational, the most direct, the most comfortable with their anger. 
as kids, they were the little too. They were the soft, loving, giving type. And there was some early betrayal there that taught them that it wasn't safe, that they couldn't be safe physically even to be that soft. And so they put on this like thick armor of strength to protect that like very gooey inner inner being. And then our type nines in childhood were type threes. So they wanted to be seen. They wanted to kind of perform and show off and be seen and recognized for their skill. But they were told, like, it's actually better if you're invisible. It's it, it's just easier on everyone if you don't speak up, if you don't have opinions, if you kind of silence yourself, your voice doesn't matter here. And so that that like part of that part of themselves that felt like their voice mattered, that they needed to be heard, get silenced and shut down and to the point where they don't speak up or they don't express their opinions. So do you think that, I mean, I, I hear you talking about, we all started somewhere and that's kind of what led us to evolve to get to where we are now. So our Enneagrams are evolving. They change. I, so they're not stagnant. I thought they were kind of stagnant, but that's wrong. We change as we grow based on our experiences, based on our traumas, based on how we've healed. Well, I would say it's like our early childhood wound. So Mm. um, a lot of times those wounds are happening before we're even conscious of Mm. being or we have even have memories. And so um, I would say that we do stay the same, like our worldview typically stays the same. It's possible that a trauma could alter your Enneagram type. It's, I would say it's unlikely. Like typically once we kind of groove ourselves into a worldview and kind of how we, how we, this is how I protect myself. This is how I get through the world. It's, it's hard to shift. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense. I think I was a little off base at first, but now I, I understand what you're saying. Um, something else I want to talk about though is companionship. Enneagram and companionship. Are there numbers that certain personality types typically are drawn toward? Or do you think, you know, we're all kind of drawn toward each other in different ways? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think we, we do see patterns. So I can say that it personally, I've seen a lot of three, nine relationships. I've also seen a lot of two, five relationships, which kind of makes sense. Are you in a relationship with a nine? (laughs) My husband's a nine. (laughs) I'm listening to you. I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) my husband is a nine through and through. That's so funny. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that, it makes sense because that nine kind of inertia is the rest that the three needs. And then that three energy is the motivation that the nine needs. So it makes complete sense. And then our two and five, it's kind of the same thing. The two is the most relational of the types. The five is the most private of the types. And so I I think the fives need that too, to be like, hey, come, come out of your shell. Let's hang out. You know, <laughs> even if it's sometimes difficult, they need each other. And fives are amazing at boundaries and twos need boundaries. So they balance each other really well. Um, I think ones and sevens are very similar. Ones are very disciplined. Sevens are very free. And so they balance each other. Um, So I will say there's some, definitely some patterns. However, it's not that like you can't be in a good relationship with the wrong number. It's just that you, you, as long as you're both doing the work, right? If you're both on the journey, willing to look at stuff, willing to think about it, and you're both kind of growing together, that's all that matters. Okay. That makes sense. I love that you brought that up, by the way. Uh, The first thing I'm going to do after this call is I'm going to call my husband and be like, guess what? We're meant to be. Um, (laughs) This is so funny. (laughs) 
Um, okay. So let's talk about the Enneagram and first date. Do you think that this is an appropriate conversation to bring up? Maybe not first date, but like later on to see compatibility. Have you heard of people doing that before? Well, um, if, if I had been dating when I had the Enneagram, I definitely would have brought it up on a first date just because I, that's how you, that's how I date. (laughs) (laughs) So I think like if you're, I think the, the thing with the Enneagram is it is, it's about your childhood wounds. Like, this is about what have you been, what have you always thought you had to be? So if you want to go there on a first date, I think that's a great filter for people who are there for it and people who are not. And I think it would be less about, are you the Enneagram type I'm compatible with? And more so, how do you respond to a conversation about self-exploration and personal growth? Are you here for it or does it shut you down? Because if you're, if you if I were to ask someone like, have you heard of the Enneagram? And they were to one to say, yes, I love it. Here's what I do with it. That would be great information. But two, if they were just interested and curious and open to growth, I think that's more so what I would be looking for than like what type they are, because it doesn't really matter what type they are if they're open to growth. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, that would be a, such a fun first date conversation or just like to get to know each other um, and talk about that self-exploration and everything, because, you know, if somebody's willing to explore themselves and kind of dive deep into what makes them tick or tick, what their strengths are and everything, I think that would be a good sign. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, something else I want to talk about is, you know, this whole podcast is about women of impact. And that's why I reached out to you because you do make such an impact through talking about the Enneagram, through sharing different ways that people can find community and connection through where they type themselves and whatnot. And you, you really make people feel heard in, in a world that's really lonely, especially regarding the pandemic and everything last year. It's hard to feel seen. It's hard to feel heard sometimes. So I was wondering if you could tell everybody a little bit about maybe what drives you to do what you do other than your passion for the Enneagram. And if there's ever been a time that you realized like it clicked, this is why this is my purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, thank you. Um, I think that my purpose, like if I were to distill it would be to do my best to ease human suffering in their relationship to themselves. So, um, I think so often we're in a war against ourselves and we're, we're making life harder than it has to be because we are so uncomfortable with being and, um, yeah, so I think my in everything that I'm doing with the Enneagram and any in the podcast or writing books, my goal is to offer compassion, empathy, you know, compassion, empathy, and comfort, and um, just permission to to be okay, and permission to like not constantly be fixing, but to just allow yourself a, a way to show up differently. I love that. And then kind of like we talked about earlier, right, where it's okay to pour love into the things that we hate about ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that your platform really helps people come to terms with that because I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of people just continue for their whole lives hating the things that they hate about themselves. Mm -hmm. And what you've done so much is show people the way that they can pour love into those areas of their life and how they can, you know, maybe see things in a different way to help them 
grow, to help them change habits, to help them become healthier versions of maybe the unhealthy areas of their life. So if you haven't checked out Sarah's or Sarah Jane's Instagram account, you should check out Enneagram and Coffee because it is like my daily source of dopamine. Every time you post something, I'm like, oh, yay, self-discovery time. Um, But so Sarah, where can our guests find you other than Enneagram and Coffee? Where can they find you? Where can they hear from you? Where they can they learn from you? And where can they learn more about the Enneagram? Yeah. So I think the book is a great place. The Honest Enneagram. If you're just getting used to the Enneagram or you're looking for a compassionate voice in that world, then the Honest Enneagram would be a great place to start. And then, yeah, we have a podcast, Enneagram and Coffee. And I actually kind of duped you by accident. So my Instagram handle changed to my name, Sarah Jane Case. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. That's not for you to have to worry about. So yeah, it's Sarah Jane Case now. um, But Enneagram and Coffee is still in the title. So you'll recognize it when you get there. Awesome. Well, everybody make sure to go give her a follow after this. Sarah, I hope that we can stay in touch and this isn't the last time that we connect here on success, but um, I, I really love everything that you do. You empower people everywhere. You help people find connection. You make people feel seen. And I don't think that there's much more impactful than that. So thank you for everything that you do. And we loved having you here on success stories. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. This has been Success Stories with Madison Piper. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe, drop a review, and tell your friends. If you'd like to hear more shows like this one, go to success.com slash podcasts.